Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan. Our guest today is the award-winning journalist, music critic, and author Joel Selvin for a conversation about his classic book, Sly and the Family Stone, an oral history. Out of print for several years, but just reissued by the good people at Permuted Press. It's the story of the rise and fall of one of the most important figures in modern music, from his childhood as a musical prodigy to the end of the band in 1975. It's a tale told well by the people who were there, his parents, his bandmates, his ex-wife, his managers, his gangsters, even some members of the Jefferson Airplane and the Grateful Dead. Some who loved him, some who came to hate him, some who did both. It's a story Joel Selvin was exceptionally well qualified to uncover. Not only is he an award-winning journalist and music critic who has covered pop music for the San Francisco Chronicle for more than 35 years, and the author of close to 20 best-selling books about The Grateful Dead, The Rolling Stones, Ricky Nelson, Haight Ashbury, and more. He is also a native of Berkeley, California, and was in his early teens as Sly was making a name for himself as a hip disc jockey on San Francisco radio. And he also remembers everything about the first time he heard Sly's seminal song, Dance to the Music, as a 17-year-old in late 1967. And he is a great raconteur. As to the requisite Madison connection, well, I guess that's through me, because this is the fourth time around for Joel on my show, following conversations about his books, Altamont, The Rolling Stones, The Hell's Angels, and the inside story of Rock's Darkest Day. Here comes the night the dark soul of Burt Burns and the dirty business of rhythm and blues, and Hollywood Eden, electric guitars, fast cars, and the myth of the California paradise. It is a pleasure to welcome back to Madison Bookbeat, Joel Selvin. Great to be back, Stu. So what do you remember about that first time you heard dance to the music in the fall of 1967? Oh, it's, it's vividly impressed in my brain. It's a Saturday morning. It's a sunny Saturday morning, and I'm driving over to Berkeley uh, down the East Shore Freeway past Aquatic Park. And uh, I've dialed in KDIA, which is the big R&B AM radio station. And lo and behold, Sly Stone is on the air. Now, he had been a KDIA disc jockey up until maybe six months or a year before. Uh, so we hadn't heard him on the air in a while. He'd been off with his band. They'd had a couple of albums out. Uh, and so that was sort of like, oh, wow, Sly's back on the air. And as I'm driving down Aquatic Park, he says that he's going to drop the needle on the band's new record. And up came those voices, boom, boom, you know, and ah. Uh... Just everything changed inside my mind. Just saw uh, the the door opened, and there was a portal to a new world of music. And I'm not alone in that. I mean that that was how Sly's music affected people. It was so uh, beyond 
what had been imagined up to that point and collected a bunch of ideas that were all in the ether at the time and converged them on each other in such an impactful way. It changed how white people looked at black music. It changed how black people looked at white music. It changed how black people looked at black music. Sly's music was fundamentally revolutionary. The Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, the whole Motown gang, there would have been no Papa was a Rolling Stone if it wasn't for Sly. Um, but also, Miles Davis was enormously affected by Sly's music. Herbie Hancock made the biggest selling jazz album in history, Headhunters. And on there is a track called Sly. And it's not an accident. Headhunters was completely inspired by Herbie Hancock's understanding of Sly's music. So it's a, it's, it's a pivot point in 20th century American music. You mentioned Miles Davis. There's even some Miles Davis uh, in the book. Uh, not not a particularly productive collaboration between Sly and Miles. And apparently there are times that Sly did not appreciate Miles playing that voodoo music on, on, his, <laughs> on his organ. But has Sly gotten the due he deserves? Oh, I don't think so. Uh, you know, if Sly had died in 1971 uh like a jim morrison or a janice joplin uh all the 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 greatness and and his his triumphs and his glory would have been sort of hermetically sealed but instead we all lived with this really long slow public decline this arrest this not showing up for this that i mean he wound up a fugitive from justice living on the lamb for like 18 months uh, and then, you know, when he was inducted in the, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, in 91, nobody in the band had seen him in years, in years. He had just disappeared off the earth. So, no, he, he put his own uh, reputation into decline and, and, and undermined it and continued to undermine it and undermine it. Uh, the comeback gigs did nothing to reverse that if anything they just dug him into a deeper hole the grammy award thing and 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 the coachella appearance uh so no his, his reputation has not been well tended to you were in your late teens when the band was at its peak did you see him live sure sure they were amazing uh i saw him once before woodstock uh and they were just electrifying they were they were fast and tight and full of jive and powerful uh and then after woodstock they were completely transformed in this kind of messianic uh event machine you know they weren't concerts each one was an event and uh including that if he was going to show you were going to wait because he wasn't going to be there on time for sure and i spent oh i can remember a couple of nights of waiting couple three hours for him to take the stage along with you know everybody else at pepperland or winterland winterland he came out after like having everybody sit there for two and a half hours and then lectured them on on how san francisco wasn't cool anymore and you know he was crazed he was off on a power trip he was he was lost in his own ego and uh he he, he was ruthless and reckless in his exercise of that I wanted to get to some of the downfall. Um, 
in a second because it really really is profound. But but in terms of Sly Sly on the way up, he was something of a, a musical prodigy. He could play several instruments even before he was in his teens. Was he a great musician, or was it that he created great music through the band he assembled? Well, all of the above. Uh, you, you know, I don't I don't think Sly Stone played guitar solos along the lines of a, of a of a Joe Pass or an Eric Clapton or anything, but he could handle a guitar as well as anybody needed to. And at a very early age, uh, his gifts were abundantly apparent. Uh, he starts out in a doo-wop group, which interestingly enough, is boys and girls, blacks and whites, or at least one black, him. Uh, and the Viscaynes had a sort of regional hit. It came to the attention of the top 40 disc jockey, Tom Donahue, and Donahue recognized something in Sly. And this young Sly, I talked to many people that, that remember him from that period. Uh, he was an incredibly bright, shiny young thing. And Donahue put him to work uh, writing and producing Bobby Freeman, who was San Francisco's first rock and roll star. He had Do You Want to Dance in 1957, I think. And they concocted a, a, a dance song, a sort of contrived dance song of the day called Do the Swim, Come On and Swim, which would have been a, a massive hit on a bigger label. As it was, it was top five. And Sly made enough money at age 19 to be able to buy a house for his parents and his father could quit the janitor business. Uh, so that was where he began uh, with that Bobby Freeman. The next thing he did was produced uh, records for Don Hughes labels by the Bo Brummels, who were kind of a Beatles-type band. Again, Laugh Laugh would have been a number one record on any other label. Brilliantly produced, brilliantly conceived. He asked the Bo Brummels about working with Sly, and they just go on about how brilliant he was, how energetic, how productive, how supportive, how collaborative. Just an amazing young guy. Uh, and, and that's the guy who launched into the disc jockey world and started putting his band together in his spare time. Uh, and, and Sly and the Family Stone was a, a strategically conceived outfit that, that was a bunch of ideas that Sly had that he wanted to put into place because he wasn't really like idiomatically confined. He was a very interesting disc jockey who uh, played the routine R&B stuff of the day, you know, Motown and James Brown and that, but he mixed in Beatles album tracks, Dylan. He stole a lot of patter from Lord Buckley. So he was like this super hip guy uh, who like palled around with Billy Preston from Ray Charles Band and uh, aspired to the, the the kind of young, hip, prince of the city thing that was what 1964 and 1965 were all about for rock and roll. And that's the guy who put together this band, Sly and the Family Stone, very cunningly, very strategically. Black, white, boy, girl, message music that matched the sort of tenor of the times. Uh, no, he knew exactly what he was doing. And how important was it that, of all the musicians, the drummer be white? So that's a, a, an inverted cliche, because as little as rock and roll was integrated at that point, there was a certain acceptable thing to having a black drummer, because, oh, blacks had natural rhythm, right? 
And so there was a lot of that out there where, you know, the, the, the band would be all white up front, but there'd be a brother on the set. Uh, and Sly wanted to invert that. And, and in fact, Greg uh, Rico was not the world's greatest drummer. And everybody in the band remembers the night in San Jose when Frosty, the drummer from Lee Michaels' band, sat in. And Frosty was incredible. He was a great drummer. And and everybody was like blown out. And they thought Greg was not going to survive that. But Frosty stayed with Lee Michaels and Greg kept the job. So I mean, Sly was willing to settle for a drummer who was like not exactly the quality he wanted. And in fact, uh, on a lot of the Sly records, that's him on drums. Greg and I sat down here in the record library one afternoon uh, listening to There's a Riot Going On to just try and find where his drums were. That was his last record. He was the first guy to leave the band. And, and he was sort of disgusted by the whole thing anyway. It was all being put together piece by piece, overdub, overdub, overdub. And the 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 drug thing had driven everybody crazy. And, 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 and he saw mental health away from this. So he bailed on that. But we went back and listened to the record and it was like, Really hard to find where Greg played. We found some parts of his surviving on the nine-minute version of Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again that's on there. But otherwise, it's Sly on drums or the drum machine, Rhythm Ace, which was a very primitive early drum machine uh, that Sly was enamored with. And that's Family Affair was the hit single off that uh, set. And that, that Family Affair is Sly, Rose, his sister, singing, Billy Preston on organ, or actually electric piano, excuse me, and the rhythm ace. That's all that is. There's no members of the band on that at all. Both kids are good around. Blood's thicker than the mud. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. It's a family affair. Where do Cynthia Robinson on trumpet and Jerry Martini on tenor stack up against Jim Price and Bobby Keys? Well, Bobby Keys is an incredible soloist. Uh, and and uh, Jim Price is super well-trained. You know, he could write those charts and write those arrangements. Uh, Jerry came out of an R&B uh, group called George and Teddy, who were a, a fixture on San Francisco's Broadway nightlife scene, which was also where... Sly sort of operated when he was uh, doing the Bo Brummels and like that. So everybody knew George and Teddy. They were a fixture at the Condor. And Jerry was their sort of showman uh, sax player uh, that they you know put up on the bar and let him walk down the bar while he played a solo. Cynthia was somebody that Sly knew from high school in Sacramento. Uh, and, and she was in love with Sly from the moment she met him. Uh, I think he understood that Cynthia could play well enough to be part of this band that she looked the part, and that with the uh, it, that he could that he could control her easily. She 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 fit into his world very uh, easily. She is not a great uh, uh, trumpet player, but she wasn't horrible either. She was just fine. And all those guys were doing were horn punches. I don't think there's any really great like solo. Uh, 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 parts or or you know, elaborate arrangements there. It's pretty much just horn punches. 
I think the second most interesting narrative arc in the book is the story of Larry Graham. Am I right that he's also the second most important musician in the band? Larry is so interesting. Yeah, he he collected his own little following. He was outside Sly's area, his, his radius. He was the bass player in a trio with his mother, and his mother worked all the time. She played piano like Errol Garner and sang like Dinah Washington, Del Graham. And Sly had a friend, a fan, who took him to see the Del Graham trio. And what he saw was Larry Graham's thumb popping, which nobody had ever played a bass like that before. Everybody played bass with their fingertips. Uh, but Larry had developed a way to pop the string with his thumb, and he could play it both ways, up and down. So instead of having a boom, 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 he had a pop, pop. And Sly immediately understood how revolutionary that was and incorporated that into his sound which was kind of being drawn from sort of some of the Fillmore era bands without their lax musicianship. Yet at the same time, it, it emanated from a, a, a more traditional R&B world. And when he put that Larry Graham bass in it, he invented funk. And you actually broke some news about Larry Graham's departure from the band, perhaps some details that Larry might not even have known at the time. Yeah, Larry called up and asked me about it. <laughs> Yeah, Larry was driven out of the band by the gangsters who were on PCP. Uh, they, they were looking to beat him up real bad. They did beat up a couple guys in the road crew and kidnapped one of their girlfriends. They just ran rampage over everything one night in Los Angeles. Uh, and in fact, Larry was snuck out of the hotel in the backseat of a car under a blanket with his girlfriend. So th that that's that's how Larry left Sly and the Family Stone fearing for his life. and were the, But were there details about that whole incident that he hadn't known about until he read in the book? It was during, a, uh, it was before the book came out. He, he uh, uh, I, I conducted a, an interview with Larry early on and it was pretty namby-pamby. And then as I learned more about what had really gone on and transpired, I reconnected with Larry and attempted a second interview, and he froze. He just couldn't handle it. And called back two or three nights later and wanted to know what I knew. He said that, that when you mention the Cavalier Motel, I think that you know something that I don't. I, you know, yeah, I did, because uh, he got out of there before everything was clear. I mean, he just ran out of there fearing for his life. And I told him, I said, was if if he wondered if his life was in jeopardy, that yes, indeed, uh, I'm under the impression that a gentleman who was known as Black, I have no idea what his real name was, had a gun in his pocket, and he was planning on using it on Larry Graham, or at least that's what I was told. So this is an essential book about a transformative musical figure that has lots of really important information in it. Why did it go out of print? I was in print for a long, long time, uh, I, I, and and it never really uh, it, it it developed what I uh, might laughingly call a cult audience. It, it, it was a part of a series of oral histories that were put out supposedly to sweep dusty corners clean of rock history, 
I think the, the, the initial offering was Sam and Dave, Sly and the Family Stone, Leonard Skinner, and Black Sabbath. And there were a couple others, but then they just, you know, continued the series. And the series was very ugly. They had really uniform covers. Uh, the, the publisher told me, oh, they'll help sell each other. And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Collect them all, kids. Um, <laughs> and, but I would sort of overachieved, you know, talking to like 40 some odd people and, and interviewing all these gangsters that had never told their stories before and, and unearthing so many of the 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 lurid and, and tawdry details uh that that the book kind of had an afterlife uh you, you know like quest love came up to me at a party and introduced himself because he'd read my book right so it it became kind of like my cred in the hood with the with the cognoscenti with the people that had found it and and i had all these transcripts to these interviews that i'd done so when uh, Jeff Kalis got a book deal to do a, a, a biography of Sly and the Family Stone. I loaned him the transcripts. So, you know, essentially, I researched his book for him. And <laughs> you, you see this on and on, like the David Camp profile Sly in Vanity Fair during one of his big comebacks. And the, and the first thing he's got to get out of the way is that there's this incredible oral history about Sly and the Family Stone by Joel Selvin. And and I, I really I, I'm talking about my book like it's something that I did right, and it's not. It's it's these it's these people who I interviewed. It's it's an oral history, and and they're so eloquent at telling their own story. It's so vivid. I couldn't have improved on it. And, and in fact, Mojo Magazine hired me to do a cover article about there's a riot going on and use the transcripts. For the quotes and i i wrote my ass off Stu, but it wasn't it, it didn't it doesn't have the emotional immediacy of these people's first person accounts of that so i feel okay like taking credit for having this edited and assembled it but it's really it's their book and those voices are what makes the book so real and that piece that is in the 20 and the 2001 um, edition of, of Mojo Magazine on there's a riot going on. The the magazine article is entitled Lucifer Rising. Was Sly Lucifer or or was he really just a good kid playing bad and doing bad drugs and surrounding himself with bad people? Yeah, David Kaprilik, who was uh, Sly's manager uh, for quite a long time, had this whole theory about the two Slys, Sly Stone and Sylvester Stewart. And, and, and he saw this dichotomy in Sly Stone as being this uh, uh, dark and, and, and evil uh, uh, predator and, and, and Sylvester Stewart as being this wise humanitarian strategist and, and that they were at odds with each other. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of my uh, uh, that book is informed by one Hamp Banks, Hamp de Bubba de Banks. And Hamp was a pimp when Sly met him. And Sly was a young disc jockey. And, and he looked up to Hamp as a figure of repute in the community. Uh, and Hamp was amused by this snappy, jive little disc jockey. And they became very powerful friends. Now, Hamp disappeared off the scene for a little while came back 
and Woodstock had happened. So Sly installed Hamp in the sort of, you know, uh, administrative aid position or, or manager or whatever you call him. He, he moved his brother out of the bedroom next to him and moved Hamp in. And from there on out, if you wanted to talk to Sly, you had to ask Hamp. Now, Hamp became an incredible collaborator in this book. Nobody had ever talked to him or asked him, and he was most enthusiastic. He's an ex-Marine. Uh, he did his fair share of the same drugs, but he wasn't really as smitten by them as everybody else. And I've said this before, that a lot of the people that uh, were in the band and that I interviewed, they were really like trauma victims. And Hamp wasn't a trauma victim. Hamp may have been a traumatizer. But so he had a clear view on this in some ways. And also, here's the other thing. Sly grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist family. He was a goody-goody. He was very much raised in a bubble. He was protected. Yet he aspired to be one of the bad guys, to be one of the cool guys. <clears throat> Back to high school. People all remember him from high school as being this guy who wanted to be but wasn't really. And as he got older and associated with Hamp and Hamp's associates, who are genuine criminal elements, bank robbers and all that kind of stuff, uh, they had an expression, these guys, and, 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 and Hamp introduced me to all of them. They were just wonderful cats. Uh, and, and what they would say was, he's not that guy. And what that means is he isn't an authentic badass. He's not that guy. And they all knew that. For instance, when I was mentioning the uh, beating of the road crew at the Cavalier Motel, uh, Hamp, Eddie Chin, JB, Black, and all their guys, they burst into the hotel room and they'd beat the crap out of these guys. They were using canes because they'd seen Clockwork Orange recently. Uh, and uh, Sly came in and, and like, watched and, and then went over and slapped one of the guys a couple times. And then, you know, so I, so I did it, you know, I did it. And then he was gone. So I don't think that Eddie Chin thought too much of Sly. He told me that he cold cocked Sly once because he was just so stupid he couldn't sit, stand it. And 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 he and Eddie in his his colorful language says, "Yeah, I slapped the taste out of his mouth." <laughs> How critical was getting to Hamp to getting other people to talk? Hamp was the key that unlocked this whole story, and in fact, I, um, I changed the dedication of the book to Hamp for the republication. Hamp passed away last year. Uh, he was 83 years old, and, and uh, I was one of the speakers at his funeral. Uh, there were 400 people. They, they, they paraded down Fillmore Street and stopped traffic for an hour. Uh, it, it was the send-off for a king, and, 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 a, and a deserving one at that. Um, but I, I found Hamp, and, and he'd never been contacted by anybody. And he came over to my house and, and was is sitting in my office. And I've got a stack of CDs. And one of them is an English CD that collected a bunch of early Sly Stone tapes from the Autumn Records days. Uh, and, and most of them had never been released. Uh, 
and 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 Hamp's looking over and he goes, "Oh, every dog has his day." That was always one of my favorites. And then he proceeds to recite the lyrics to an unreleased Sly Stone song from 1964. I thought, man, this cat is for real. And 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 he 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 was a truth teller of major proportions. Everybody knows that about Hamp. And and he spent hours with me telling the stories over and over so that I knew what the accurate account was. Then he went to bat going, you got to talk to this guy. Have you talked to Bobby Womack? I've been calling Womack for weeks. Let me call him. He calls Womack. He leaves a message on Womack's machine. He says, this is Bub. I'm here now. You call this guy. 40 minutes later, Womack calls. I don't even say any more than hello. And he starts talking. I mean, it's just, it was fantastic. I didn't even have to ask any questions. I eventually asked him, you know, when was the last time he saw Bub and why was he so responsive? He said, well, been three or four years, but Bub always told me the truth. I'm like, you know, Dylan said to live outside the law, you must be honest. And Bub <laughs> knew that. So he collected all these guys for me, Eddie Chin, JB. I'm still in touch with JB. Uh, Black was already dead. Uh, but uh, he'd, he'd, he'd call me and say, you know, you got to go over to the Hollywood chocolate potato chip factory at four o'clock. Eddie would be waiting for you. Going, what? Who, who's Eddie? He goes, he'll tell you. <laughs> and uh, it, it really was very meaningful to him to, first of all, get his place in the story. And then second of all, to have the story accurately reflect what happened. Because to him, it was the greatest waste that he'd ever been a part of in his life, that this guy had everything and 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 he compulsively, recklessly, just systematically destroyed it and threw it away. And Hamp did not respect that. Did Hamp not think that he could have had any influence? Uh, I mean, it seems that the, everything went south literally and figuratively when they moved to Los Angeles and, and PCP comes in. Uh, the story it's it's unusual to have, to have a rock story in which cocaine is not the worst drug but here we get the pcp <laughs> did, did did hamp ever try to like slap some sense into sly well uh i i think that that was a little beyond the 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 question but you do remember uh that the, there was a point where sly decided that everybody was going to go to rehab yeah. and he told Hamp, you know, get it ready. He's going to take everybody to rehab. And Hamp gets everything ready. And then Sly says, well, maybe not everybody. Maybe just Freddie. <laughs> so Hamp takes Freddie to rehab. And and Freddie, they're driving down the freeway. And Freddie's talking, blah, 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 blah. And Hamp's just had it. He's just, he's just listened to too much stupidity for too long. He pulls over the side of the freeway and beats Freddie up in the front seat of the car and then takes him to rehab. Freddie, the Fredo of this story. Yeah, he is. Did you try to interview Sly? I don't think I did. He was kind of in the wind and I really didn't care. He was the donut hole and everybody else was the donut. Uh, and they knew exactly what the hole looked like. And I, I couldn't imagine what he could say to me besides, yeah, I did all that. Oddly enough, sometime later, uh, he was, he, uh, there, there were these lawyers that were uh, financing a, um, a lawsuit on his behalf. 
and they had him in rehab and they wanted to develop a post rehab project for Sly. And they thought doing a book might be the thing to do. And they reached out to me and arranged for me to get a, a, a phone conference with Sly about the possibility of doing a book with him. And he was funny. He, um, he wanted to know if he could get $90,000 because he wanted to buy a, a recreational vehicle. First of all, $90,000 is not a very expensive recreational vehicle. Uh, but I assured him, absolutely, you know, $90,000 from a book deal, no problem. Uh, and then he wanted to know, well, when do you get paid? When do you do the work? And when do you get paid? You do the work first, you get money first, you get some money. How's it work? So I walked him through the payout, you know, this much when you sign, this much when you turn in the manuscript, this much when it's published. And uh, he's like, okay. And I didn't, I didn't sense a great enthusiasm from him on the project, but about a week later, I got another phone call from him. And this one, some girlfriend lined up, not the lawyer or anything. And and he wanted, he's on the phone a second time. And, and all he wants to know about now is how does that payout work again? So I got the sense that he really wasn't too serious about writing the book. He was serious about getting the book deal. It sort of fit with what I figured. We're talking with Joel Selvin. His book is Sly and the Family Stone and Oral History. What do you find the most interesting part of the narrative? It'd be hard to parse it like that. It's an incredible bell curve. The beginnings and the upside are just a super exhilarating, wonderful uh, ascension into uh, the the ranks of of of, of the Woodstock heroes, uh, and and Woodstock definitely is a pivot point where then it becomes like a matter of of personal struggle, a real Daedalus and Icarus thing. Actually, uh, oddly enough, when Caprilic and Sly first came together to be partners and, and Sly and the Family Stone were signed to Epic Records, they started a publishing company called Daedalus Publishing. <laughs> I, I didn't know Sly was a, a student of, myth, of Greek mythology. Sly was a student of a lot of things. And David Kaepernick was a pretty amazing character himself. He was uh, sort of second in charge at Columbia Records for a long time signed Barbara Streisand, Andy Williams, uh, took Betty Davis to the pre Broadway premiere of My Fair Lady. What an amazing guy. Um, and uh, that he uh, heard and and saw what he did in Sly Stone is is, is a tribute to his uh, uh, his insight and, 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 and his vision. Um, but uh, it was a tragic event for him by the, in the long run. Three suicide attempts later, he just busted out of the whole music business and wound up growing onions and uh, lilies on uh, Maui. Uh, his, uh, the last uh, thing I saw of David was just a few years ago. Uh, he was 93 years old and he was just about to leave this mortal choir and he posed for a photograph um, in a tie-dyed caftan, laughing his ass off with his hand on his upturned casket. Don't go with style or don't go with all. Did anybody's life get better for knowing and working with Sly? It was largely a disaster. There were some survivors who prospered later in life, but it wasn't like the, the guys in the band. 
they've all really struggled to s support themselves ever since. Um, you know, uh, Stephanie Swanigan was Sly's administrative assistant and 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 uh, paramour for a while. Uh, she wound up, you know, you know, healing herself and going into politics and becoming a very important uh, uh, figure in, in administrative work in Sacramento. Uh, Johnny Cola from Huey Lewis and the News was in in, in a post Sly and the Family Stone Sly band for a little bit. I don't know. Hard to say. I, I don't think so. I, I, I think that's a, an interesting question. And 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 no, Sly, I don't think Sly really lifted up any of the people he was associated with. I think he exploited them, manipulated them, and discarded them. Three of the four books that we've talked about are about dysfunction and tragedy. What, what does that tell us about the music industry? I'm not a happy ending guy. <laughs> uh I, I mean, life doesn't have a happy ending. Uh, and and it's sort of a Hollywood fantasy that stories have to have some kind of neat, happy ending. I like gritty details. I like uh, uh, stories of adversity. And uh, uh, I don't mind coloring in the shadows. So, yeah, Sly Stone, Burt Burns, uh, Hell's Angels and Altamont, um, Jan Barry and, and those crazy guys in Hollywood. To me, it's like, you know, a kind of noir approach to rock history. And, and we did, we haven't had a chance to talk about it, but don't forget the mob and uh, Peppermint Lounge. Yep. The whole Sopranos angle on uh, Burt Burns is what's uh, got Rob Reiner all uh, jazzed about making a movie of it. Is, is that going to happen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's written a script. It's wonderful. How much of the narrative did you know going in? And were there things within the narrative that really surprised you to the point of shocking you? The dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, look, I didn't really know what a nightmare it was. I knew it wasn't pretty. But my information was relegated to accounts from the members. And like so many people that, that recount traumatic events, they develop a kind of story around it and they stick to the story. Uh, it wasn't until I met Hamp and started getting the details of the back story, what was happening around them. And then I came back to the band the next time and I'd say, well, Hamp says, and they'd go, oh, well, yeah, he told you about that. Oh, well, yeah, that did happen. So... Yeah, I mean, I had no idea the depths of the whole thing and the dimensions of it. And uh, as dark and, and dangerous and despairing as it was, I couldn't have imagined a vicious pit bull attacking his little baby son. How, how was her affect when she told you that story? That interview took place with Kathy Silva at about 10 in the morning in a Las Vegas casino. We were sitting in one of those little areas where they have raised for bar, a little cocktail lounge in the middle of the casino. And at 10 in the morning, there weren't a lot of people around. And she was weeping, openly sobbing. You know, uh, it, it was a wrenching interview for both of us. I don't know why she felt free to unburden herself with me. 
but that that was one of the most powerful emotional interviews of the uh uh whole thing and there are a lot of people that were exploring memories that they had left sit for a long time with me but yeah kathy silva that was wrenching and and how did the baby eventually turn out sly jr i think he's an audio engineer in los angeles uh he was uh working around uh, uh sly's like 2008 comeback he was associated with that doing some audio work around that uh he's missing an ear are there people who just wouldn't and couldn't talk to you rose yeah i met with rose really early on when i just started uh and uh she was singing in larry graham's band and, and and i went backstage and hung out with her and she just couldn't have been more charming and more forthcoming she was a lovely gal and then uh i'd start making appointments to talk to her and you know it was getting more difficult and finally we we settled on a thing and i traveled down to los angeles i took a, a, a suit and tie because she said we were going to go to her church together uh and uh the first meeting was to be in a restaurant and I, I just sat there waiting for her and about 45 minutes after when she was supposed to show and she called the restaurant and said she couldn't come and they told me and she would never answer my calls or say anything uh but I mean I know what it was she knew that I'd hooked up with Ham, and she'd been married to Ham. and can I use a, a foul language on this bro broadcast well I can always edit it out if if, if it's too foul well, what Hamp said was that Rose so busy selling her out of both sides of her drawers. <laughs> I think I'll need to clip that a little bit, but <laughs> <laughs> when you said a little while ago that that you go back to people and they say, "Oh, Hamp," and and they tell you more of the story, was it because they originally didn't remember it all, or they originally figured, "Well, I'm not going to get into this because he's not going to know enough to ask about it." Well, like I said, trauma victims have a way of developing a practiced story that makes it safe for them to recount. It 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 assuages their harm feelings and 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 the, and their injuries. So that's just typical of trauma victims. Uh, and and that just is it is it's not even a conscious thing. You just do that. So then you come back and says, well, what about this? And they go, oh, like I remember Freddie. I said, well, Freddie, what about all the PCP? And Freddie says, oh, we didn't we didn't smoke no PCP. We smoked angel dust. <laughs> Galaxy brain stuff there. Did you explain to him? No, I, I you know, correcting people in, 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 in interviews is always a mistake. OK, OK, OK. Uh, <laughs> I'll um, think about that, Stu, you know. Uh, no, uh, no, uh, man, you got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that under advisement. Thank you. Thank you. We referred earlier to his concept of black and white girls and boys and everything. Some of his lyrics, especially everyday people, are this are imbued with this beautiful humanism. I mean, I mean, that's a beautiful song.
did he ever truly believe that or was it all a, a sham and a scam from the start? Was that in his heart or just in his head is what you mean? Yeah. Because he understood it. The 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 songs speak for themselves and, and, and they contain those sentiments wholly and completely. So he understood them, different strokes for different folks. Now, was that what he was about? Was that what was in his heart? I you can't make that stuff up out of whole cloth. On the other hand, I believe there were a lot of hidden agendas operating with Sly, and that the Sly and the Family Stone was a strategically constructed affair. You talk about the humanism of uh, everyday people, and in fact, the whole Stand album is very much of a of of a piece of philosophic peace, right? Don't call me your whitey. Uh, stand. I want to take you higher. All these are, are are fit in with this everyday people concept of a of a garden of God's bouquet and 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 uh, humanitarian uh, uh, gestures and, and and all that Woodstock flower child generation stuff that he put his finger on so succinctly there. Well, the next thing, you know, it's a, like 18 months for, before the next album, which is an eternity in, in the pop music world. And the only thing that you hear from Sly after that is the number one single, Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself Again. So clearly we've moved from the humanistic to the narcissistic. Papa still singing. Next thing we come up with is there's a riot going on, which is one of the most supremely dark visions of interpersonal relations that had ever been visited on the pop scene at that point. Uh, so you can see that whatever strategy, whatever infrastructure was behind the humanitarian material, it gave way to some kind of inner voice of Sly's that was probably an, as important as his music was in terms of creating a role model for Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and people like that. You know, if Sly can reach down and 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 deal with his innermost thoughts and his struggles and need for a identity, then so can we. Thank you for letting me be myself again. May only have one chord, but yeah, one chord. But it, it has great lyrics. And I have to admit, it was not until this week that I learned the lyric was stiff all in the collar, not stick ball in the parlor. <laughs> yeah, it's an amazing piece. And 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 musically it is one chord. You referred earlier to Sly reciting. Lord Buckley on the radio in the early 60s, there's a clip of Sly on the Dick Cavett show reciting part of the Naz. He was well versed in, in uh, his, his lordship. 
and and one of the uh, rabbit holes that the book sent me down, in addition to listening to all my old Sly albums and CDs, is watching these old clips of him on the Merv Griffin and the Dick Cavett show. And some of them, he's charming and pleasant and the performance is great. And part of them are just a train wreck. Can you talk a bit about the agony and the ecstasy of watching some of those old TV clips? Well, the backstory on the second Cavett show is, is, is so extraordinary. I don't know how many pages it takes up in the book, but it, it just, it's, it's Byzantine. You know, and it starts out at Muhammad Ali's house in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, and then Sly slips away to the West Coast by himself because he's run out of drugs and he doesn't know where to score in New York. And now he's out in Los Angeles and everybody's in the East Coast and Hamp has to wrangle Bobby Womack to get Sly out to New York to do the Cabot show. I think Hamp said something like, you know, uh, and you, you know how much trouble I was in if I had to go to Bobby Womack. So, <laughs> and then there's this whole scene at Butler Aviation where Sly's and Womack get in the helicopter and leave to go to the show and then come back and um, Bub has to find him in the bathroom. I mean, it's just insane stuff. And they get on the set. And this is all, you can see this on YouTube. And Cabot sees him across the set and says, ladies and gentlemen, Sly and the family stone. And Sly leans over to, uh, to, to Hamp and says, Bub, I got diarrhea. And goes to the bathroom. And Cabot's sitting there going, we'll be right back after a minute. And they come back, and Sly's on stage already. No introducing him. They didn't come back until he was in front of the camera. And they burned down. Thank you for letting me be myself again for like nine minutes. It's just absolutely one of the greatest performances by anybody I've ever seen on one of these talk shows. And then he goes to talk to Cavett, right? And he's so high. He's just, he trips on his way over to the couch and, and he's got the little tea cozy pulled down over his head and he's just giggling. <laughs> Dick Cavett. <laughs> Dick Cavett. <laughs> and Cavett, who's already so pissed off he can barely stand it he's got like a stick up his rectum looks like this and he's trying to conduct an interview and Sly just keeps going ah dick cavett that's all there too on youtube man it's an unbelievable performance in both ways you mentioned muhammad ali there's there's an episode sly and muhammad ali on the merv griffin show and sly actually drops a bomb on muhammad ali is that ali is going on about the black power and everything and Sly goes and where do you live brother lives in the very white neighborhood of uh, there Hill. was a uh, ali didn't dig sly you could tell Al, ali was clean he was righteous he knew what sly was he recognized sly for who he was and he didn't dig him no you you, you could tell he was he, he was steaming did you avail yourself of those rabbit holes when you were either researching or doing the interviews or putting the book together? So in 1995, when I was doing this book, there wasn't really much internet stuff. There certainly yeah. wasn't a YouTube. Uh, there was a, a collector named Neil 
Etchison. I, I'm sorry, Neil. Uh, uh, it's been a long time. And and Neil had tapes of uh, TV shows and outtakes of him studios, uh, posters and stuff like that. He was like the Sly Stone archive. He was fantastic for that. So I'd seen most of the the, the things that we're talking about, but on scratchy, funky v v VHS uh, copies. Did you listen to a lot of Sly while you were working on the book? Tons. Tons. And there were uh and and there were a lot of bootlegs that uh uh have, have since become not bootlegs. Uh uh for instance, uh I, I think the Fillmore East stuff is out uh officially now. And and I had uh, a couple of CDs of that. Uh that was the night they opened for Jimi Hendrix. Everybody in the band remembers that as one of the finest performances they ever gave both the early show and the late show. And then I think that's out officially, but I remember listening to that a lot. And I have a, I had a Pepperland show that was just unbelievable. Just uh, everybody waited like two hours for him to show up. And he starts commenting on that as soon as he gets on stage. And then they just blow out all the stops. It's fantastic. The book ends in 1975 with the dissolution of the original band. Why does it end where it does? Oh, good God, man! I could not have, I couldn't have bared going any further downhill. It was just just Dostoevskyan after that, uh, one horrible thing after another, after another, after another, after another, from '75 until '87 uh, when he goes uh, um, uh, and becomes a, 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 a fugitive from justice, runs away from a, a bench warrant in Los Angeles. Uh, it, it just it was it was grim. It was pointless, uh, and and uh, I think I did in the in the in the mojo in the mojo thing they're talking about. I think I did do a sort of like timeline of what happened afterwards. I I, I very much regret that mojo did not print the article I did the sidebar I did on the collage on the back of riot going on. Because if you know, there's like about a hundred photographs of people pasted together with no comment about who's who, and 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 I had Hamp come over and tour me on the back of that. And Miles is on there, Ike Turner's on there, Billy Preston's on there. A lot of characters that you know are cult figures like Jim Ford, country and western singer. He's on there. It, it, the 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 collage of the back was a great sidebar, but they didn't do that. And I've gone and and, and tangented uh, uh, way far away. You were asking about rabbit holes and 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 uh, uh, research uh, uh, and uh, bootlegs. Uh, yeah, there was a, there there was a lot of sly music around to listen to, and and you know what um, is, is out now uh, on CD thanks to Alec Palau, who's the keeper of the. Uh, uh, a reissue uh, flame on that uh, is is all the um, Stoneflower productions. So between Stand and Riot, Sly ran a bunch of sort of ex laboratory experiments with other artists like Mighty Joe Hicks. That's a Life and Death and G&A on Scepter Records. And then there was the Stoneflower label that had Little Sister. They had a couple of singles, including Somebody's Watching You uh, from Stan. Uh, and there's another one, 619 or something. There was, there's a handful of these singles, and they're, they're his most experimental stuff from that period. And, and Alec has that out on a CD now.
finally, the, the that Mojo article is included in SmartS, the collected journalism, the music journalism, Joel Selvin. And there's a blur number of blurbs on the back. We got Bono and Steve Miller. There's one from Sly. says, I don't even know about Joel Selvin. What did he mean by that? That's a quote from the Jeff Kalis biography. And Kalis, in the course of uh, interviewing Sly for his biography, uh, brings up the issue of the um, oral history and the controversies around it. And that was that was uh, Sly's answer to that. Well, Sly might not know about Joel Sullivan, but thankfully we now do. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Joel. Again, the book is Sly and the Family Stone, an oral history from the good people at Permuted Press. We'll be broadcasting the Martin Luther King Day ceremonies at this time next week. Uh, Angela and Devin will be in on the 23rd. I'll be back on the 30th for another musical conversation, this time with Brian Cramp about his book, This Band Has No Past, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Shelley Pittman, Engineer Andrew Thomas, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Sly takes us out, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, community radio. <laughs>